Hello and welcome back to another episode of Knowing Me, Knowing You with Paula and I'm Paula, your host, tuning in from my home base on the west coast of Canada. Have you ever met a person or listened to a person's life story and become amazed at their resiliency, wondering how their spirit keeps going and becomes unbreakable? You sit back and ponder, how much more could life throw at this person? How much worse can it get? In this two-part episode, you will meet my friend Tracy Swinson, who tunes in from South Africa, a mother of three children and a woman who has survived the most unthinkable. During our conversations, Tracy takes us on a journey from the hands of the gunman in her home to fighting for her life in her hospital bed to mental illness cancer diagnoses, to picking up the pieces and moving on. Tracy kindly and candidly opens up, sharing her story of tragedy to triumph, rising to become the victor and hoping that others will be inspired to become unbreakable. So let's head on in and meet my friend Tracy. Enjoy. So I did want to start by reading a paragraph from some notes that you very kindly shared with me on, you know, your mental illness journey and your addiction journey, um, you know, part and parcel of everything that, you know, has happened in your life so far. So we'll start with that. Depression is a lonely man's disease, I was once told, but never really understood what it meant. Today, I can confirm this statement. People can't see your brain or the pain and anguish you carry inside. And unless they have experienced it, you cannot understand it. You function as best you can, but you don't feel like you can get out of this heavy feeling. And some days, even the sun's rays feel heavy on your skin. Then you get back into bed and hope this feeling will pass. It is hard to fight something you can't see and don't understand. It really does give you some food for thought. I think we'll, Definitely. I think we will start with just a brief picture of Tracy because, you know, today you are in a wheelchair. Today you are a two-time cancer survivor. But there was yeah. a time when Tracy was living a totally different life. So Correct. can you briefly paint a picture for listeners of what a day in the life of Tracy was before your life was turned upside down and changed, you know, forever from your the tragic shooting in your home and, and being a breast cancer survivor today? Did you go to the gym? You know, did you go out and party? Were you the girl that danced on the tables <laughs> at parties, you know? Uh, sporting events yeah. with your kids. What was your life like? Yeah, well, Paula, I had a very, very active life, even from a young girl. I was always involved in sport at school. Um, I did tap ballet and modern growing up and ice skating. Having kids, you know, you're off to the beach, you're surfing, um, you know, I even took up um Irish dancing at the age of 30. So I was quite, wow. <laughs> you know, quite active with the kids um, going to sporting events. My son played rugby and, you know, my daughter played, uh, well, she played netball and, 
you know, the youngest one was still quite young at the time, Gregan. And, um, yeah, so it was in and out of the car, to and fro, you know, fetching kids, dropping them off and, you know, holding down a career at, um, you know, DHL as well, you know, um, as a salesperson. So, you know, you spent a lot of time, um, you know, on site with clients, that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, my life was really, really busy um, being a single mom for a short period of time. I had to do everything on my own. So, you know, um, yeah, you needed all limbs to do that. Right. And um, then after the shooting, things took a huge turn. Um, suddenly things that I was doing independently and on my own, I was now having to rely on someone else to do it. And, um, you know, just simple things like, for instance, fetching and carrying the kids um, to and from school, going to a sporting event became a problem because um, generally the schools are not wheelchair friendly. And as much as I would wanted to have been there, I couldn't attend because there was no way of getting really up close um, to the sporting event or if it was swimming, whatever the case was. Um, so I did miss out quite a bit after the shooting. Um it didn't take from me in the sense, um, you know, still being a parent, um, I was seen as the monster. You know, mom became really super strict, which I had to, um, purely because, you know, going from being able to do everything on my own, now the kids were having to chip in and help, which in turn actually made them grow up really fast um, and become responsible at a very, very young age. So when you think about your life then, uh, what feelings come up? You know, does it seem like it was a dream? You know, do you recognize that person that was living that life then? I do recognize that person um, living that life then. But, you know, going being as long as I have in the wheelchair, um, which is now 17 years, you you actually mourn that loss. So it's almost like looking at a photograph of yourself when you were a child and knowing that you're all grown up now. Um, and that's exactly the way I see myself, that I've developed so many different skills that I probably wouldn't have developed had I not been shot. Um, so it's just me looking at the brighter side of life, really, at the end of the day. Yeah. But you do recognize there are limitations, but I don't like to limit myself. Obviously, um, there are certain things I cannot do, but I like to join in, you know, uh, to give you an example. Went out with some friends um, about three weeks ago and, you know, you still get pulled onto the dance floor and you still dance, but the difference is, your wheels are your legs and, you know, you yeah. still enjoy yourself. You still laugh. You're still able to um, have a life, you know, life doesn't yeah. end just because you're in a wheelchair. Yeah. So I know that, you know, you'd mentioned 17 years now, um, you know, Correct. you were literally newly married. 18 so, months. Yeah. yeah. Just mentioning that I thought, yeah, I mean, you were newly married as well. Right. So, big changes like all around, right? Mental, Massive. emotional, physical, family, and affecting your family as well. Right? Correct, 
Correct. And I mean, we were, as newlyweds, we were in Cape Town in the January and having a big um, time away from the kids as newlyweds really, really want. And we had an opportunity to climb Table Mountain. And you know how majestic that mountain is. It's just so beautiful. And I remember it was just the perfect day. You know, the ocean was turquoise blue and there was a breeze coming off the ocean. And it really seemed like a good idea to climb Table Mountain. Um, coming from Johannesburg, um, being a, a city girl, you never ever pack anything really practical because you still think you in the big city. And I had nothing um, in terms of footgear to track up the side of the mountain and mm. we went off to the VNA waterfront um looking for obviously you know a pair of trainers or hiking boots and being December most of the stores had it were really empty and um the only pair I could find was the brightest red pair of red hiking boots Paula mm. honestly and <laughs> um, they were so bright I'm pretty sure you would have been able to see me from the moon hiking up Table Mountain in them and I just thought this is not practical I'm not buying them I'll never wear them again mm. and you know the night I was shot which was li- really a month later um, lying in the passage on the floor, not being able to move my limbs. The only thing I could think of was, oh my gosh, I should have climbed Table Mountain in those hideous, crazy red hiking boots. And it was this horrible feeling of regret because I knew instantly that my life had changed. Mm. Yeah, in that moment, right, where you're facing this this tragedy and these guys in your home and you're not sure of really where this is going to go and what exactly is going to happen with your daughter, like literally like a a meter or so away from you and your family there, right? Yeah, and it's a regret. And, you know, writing my book and reliving that moment on the floor, you know, there's nothing more I can say other than, you know, don't put off what you can do today for tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow brings. And that is the reality of regret, lying there so desperately wanting to move my limbs so I could protect my daughter and protect my children um, and realizing that I was completely and utterly helpless. Um, I couldn't move. So for me, that was... It was an aha moment as well as a tragic moment, but it was an aha moment in my life. Right, yeah. So if we can go back to, you know, Tracy before all of this, mm. you know, your your mental health, you know, did you ever suffer from depression and anxiety during that time before this tragedy happened? Not not really. You know, I've always had a coping mechanism for some reason. I've always been able to move past, um, you know, tra- traumatic um, things that have happened in my life and I've just managed to cope with it. So I, I never, ever saw myself as somebody that really had any um, mental problems in any kind of way until – you know, obviously after the episode of me being shot and it was like my life spiraled out of control and yeah, yeah, I didn't know how to control it. 
Yeah. Because I didn't know. I didn't recognize what I was dealing with. Yeah. And so after the, the tragic shooting in your home, can you briefly, you know, share with listeners? So this has now happened. Um, you know, your children are just steps away from you. Your whole family is in your home. You're, you're laying there not being able to move. Maybe you can briefly share with listeners then, you know, what were your thoughts the morning after? Because now you're, you know, zipped off to the hospital. You're in the hospital. This is kind of an ICU moment, right? An emergency moment for the hospital. Yeah. Well, you know, Paula, while I was lying in the passage, aside from that aha moment um, and, you know, the perpetrators were stepping over my body like I was um, dirty washing and I was lying there gasping for air and the bullet had hit my lung. I was going in and out of consciousness, but desperately trying to keep myself alert, talking to the kids, telling them not to move, to stay in their rooms and then being hit on the side of the head uh, with the butt of a gun while, um, you know, they were trying to retrieve um, the keys for the car and the house and everything else. And, um, you know, the only thing that was going through my mind was you can't use your body to protect your kids, use your words. And you're talking about communicating, you know, just trying to control the situation the best I could using my words. And, um when Gary, my, my ex-husband now, came through to me, I was in and out of consciousness. I was batting to stay, you know, to sit and stay because I didn't want her being shot. Mm-hmm. And kept saying to him, you know, there's nothing in there that you can take that's of value. Look next to my bed. There are my wedding rings, you know, go and get my wedding rings. So I was guiding them as they were going along, keeping them away from my daughter's room. I could not keep them away from my son's room because they, you know, the boys had a TV and a PlayStation, all the rest of it. Um, But my eldest son, in his wisdom, pulled his little brother into the bed with him and said, just close your eyes and pretend you're sleeping. You know, little did I know that Kyle had actually witnessed everything because he saw the gun um go off he saw it you know slit the bullet slam into my chest and me fall to the floor um so the whole time I was talking to the kids and eventually within 20 minutes they were gone and it seemed like eons that I was lying there in that passage um I I eventually lost consciousness it was like being sucked into a very dark abyss almost like a current you try to swim against it to try and keep that light and you don't see that light, you don't see the voices, the voices, all the faces and the voices start fading. I don't remember going in the ambulance. I don't remember anything other than what was told to me a couple of weeks later when I was more compass mentors. And um, the only thing I do remember, whether or not it happened, I can't verify, but I did hear my mom's voice saying, fight. Um, the doctors had said it didn't look promising at all. And Gary had phoned my parents and told them to come to the hospital urgently. Yeah. So the fight was 24 hours if I was going to make it. Um, I remember Gary saying that I was lying limp on the emergency room table and he took the scissors from the ER doctors and he cut my pajamas off me so they could find where this bullet wound was. The guy was standing so close, 
that it actually cauterized the skin closed. And they could only see a very little small red mark um, just, you know, above my breast. And yeah, that was it. It it was cauterized, cauterized closed. Yeah. I mean, you get to the hospital and all of this has happened. Did you, were you awake the next morning or was there, were you, you know, pretty much out for a couple of days? Like, so, yeah, you know, what happened was I was out and early hours of the morning, I could hear somebody in the room and I was desperately trying to talk, but, you know, obviously not being able to speak or anything. I managed to open my eyes very briefly and it was the nurse changing the um, IV bag and she saw me open my eyes and she ran and called the neurosurgeon. And from there, I was transported to Mill Park, which is a much bigger um, hospital. And I was then admitted into the neuro ICU, which was my home for three months, fighting for my life. Yeah. And so during those three months, you know, what was your mental state during that time? Well, you know, at the beginning of the three months, um, you know, I was heavily sedated um, and put on antidepressants. And, you know, at that stage, I didn't have any thoughts other than um, surviving. Um, They had me on adrenaline to keep my heart going. (laughs) And it was so strange because as time passed on, um, you know, you only deal with what you get dealt with for that day. I could not get past um, thinking what the future held. I had to think about, okay, today I'm going to try and hold a knife and a fork, for example. You know, my hands weren't working properly. And that was all I could think about for that day was, okay, today I'm going to try and use a knife and fork. Okay, today I have to speak to um, the police and give my statement of what I remember from that night. So it was literally a day-to-day living. They had me on quite heavy um, antidepressants, anti-anxiety. I was seeing a a psychologist on a daily basis where she would come in. She used NLP therapy on me, which was very, very effective to assist me with my trauma. But As the days went on, um, you know, it was never a reality that I would never walk again. It was more a reality of um, what the nurse said to me. "Um, You need to forgive these guys if you hope to get out of here alive. You're not going to make it if you don't. And that for me, (laughs) that was two weeks of severe deliberation. Like, how do you forgive somebody for doing this to me, you know, they, they've pulled the rug from underneath my feet, literally, so to speak. And, you know, then the fight got real. It was, do you want to live? Do you want to get out of here? And, you know, I really didn't even give myself an opportunity to even grieve my loss. It was just that constant um, fight mode, you know, fight, fight, fight the whole time. So I ignored any emotions that I was feeling at the time. I completely blanked that out, you know. Um, My mom was basically um, going through chemotherapy for breast cancer and she was coming to see me and I was trying to 
in high spirits to keep her spirits high, you know, at the same time. And I've got a very dark and wicked sense of humor. So I was always finding things to to do in in, in this neuro, this neuro ward where there were about eight people. And out of the eight people, only two of us were conscious. So you can imagine the amount of banter that went on between two people that were still sort of um, able to communicate. You know, at that point, I didn't realize the fight that was coming up ahead of me. I was just living one day at a time to get out of that ICU ward. That was my sole purpose was to get out of there. And, you know, I wasn't going to get out of there easily. Um, I gotten addicted to the adrenaline. So they had to wean me off adrenaline and to get my heart used to working on its own which proved to be really, really difficult because even when I came out of ICU and I was put into my own ward, every time I sat up, my blood pressure would plummet right through the floor um, where they wouldn't even get a reading, a pulse reading on me at all. For me, my physical state that it was a fight. It was a fight to keep this body going, you know. And it's interesting that nurse that had been coming in and seeing you had said, you know, if you're going to leave here, you're going to have to forgive, which is really interesting. And being in your place, I can only imagine I look at that and go, forgive? I am lying here not knowing if I'm even going to be able to walk. So that's a big thing. So if we think about that and we think about faith, During that time then, while you were in hospital, was there ever a time that you ever spoke to, you know, the universe, to your, to spiritual guides, to God? So is that somewhere that you drew a lot of your strength from during that time? I did. I did. You know, it's funny um, how you think... (sighs) When I was lying in the passage on the floor, you know, suddenly I I was like, whoever it is out there, the creator, mother universe, whoever you are, if you're listening, I promise you I'll be a better person. Like you think you can negotiate uh, with life. And lying in hospital, I said to my husband, I said to him, you know, the passage lights were really, really bright. I think you should change the light bulb because um, I think the wattage is way too too high. And he looked at me and he says, you're mad. Those lights haven't worked in like two months. And at that point, I was like, oh, my gosh, what is it? What What was it? What was I feeling when I was there? And in spite of all the commotion that was going on around me, I had this feeling of warmth and comfort and this light that I could see. And the light wasn't moving. It wasn't, I wasn't going towards it. I wasn't going away. It was just this constant light. You know, I started speaking to my angels because I believe that it must have been an angel taking care of me, you know, you know, I believe we have earth angels as well. And I believe the nurse that looked after me was my earth angel because she highlighted so much stuff for me while I was lying in my bed and I couldn't turn pages and I couldn't use my hands. And she would talk to me and she would say to me, do you know that you have a purpose? And I'm like, what do you mean? 
I have a purpose. And what do you mean? I've got to forgive these people. And she said, well, when forgiveness comes, she said, it sets you free. And she said, once you're set free, you can do anything you want. And, you know, all I could think like, <laughs> I'd like to throttle them. Yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, you know, when they, my heart nearly stopped twice and while I was in ICU. And it was at those moments, her words rung true to me. If you want to get out of here alive, you have to forgive. And that's where I started looking into my own soul and spirituality and questioning my path and where I'm supposed to go from here. And I actually remember it was early one morning and I could hear the birds outside the the window and I just closed my eyes and I, I, I looked into the faces of these men and I just said, I forgive you. And, you know, that morning she came in and she said, your face looks different. You've actually got color. And she said, I think we're going to start therapy on your hands. And up until then, they refused to start therapy on my hands because there was just no movement. And by that afternoon, I was able to hold a knife, which was a huge Mm -hmm. milestone. And, you know, a friend of mine had been to visit and she had given me a book on your guardian angels and angels and you know, the different angels and who they are and what they do and what they bring to you and the kind of comfort they bring to you. So I started looking to my angels as guides to lead me forward and to get me out of that ICU and that I was stuck in for three months, you know. That was the start of my journey. And having, you know, you bring up the word faith, I clung to, and I still do to this day, you know, faith that anything is possible. Me walking again, anything is possible. You know, you've just got to have faith and you've got to believe. When you think about faith, because oftentimes it is said that people believe, but they don't really delve into it or pay much attention, right? Believe in God or they believe in, you know, um, whatever the religion is, but they don't really delve into it. Did you find that this really pulled you back or have you always been? spiritual but maybe the strategy just made you more spiritual than what you already were yeah you know Paula growing up as a child my father was a minister so you know being exposed to you know religion and Christianity and you get brought up in a home like that you want to hold on to it but but I always have been a person that had faith if I wanted something, I, I knew I had to put it out there because whatever I put out there, I knew would come to me. Uh, it's also resilience, you know, bouncing, being able to bounce back. And I don't think if you don't have faith, you can't bounce back. Yeah. Yeah. And so really that person, like you say, this nurse was your guardian angel that was sent to be there Correct. with you during that time to support you, right, and to just give you that little bit of guidance. Correct. What's beautiful is that you recognize that. Correct. Correct. That moment. Listeners, we have reached the conclusion of episode one of this two-part series. I encourage you to join us for part two, episode number seven, which is now accessible for you to tune into. Tracy and I resume our discussion where we left off.
delving deeper into Tracy's story. If you found this episode engaging, please consider sharing it widely. Simply copy and paste the episode link into your messages and social media feeds and don't forget to tag us. By the way, we truly appreciate your reviews as they assist others who may discover this podcast and wonder whether it's all worth a listen. All our details are clickable links in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye for now.